baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. Women candidates won big in the midterms last Tuesday, taking a record number of seats in the House and also gaining important offices at the state level here in California. These gains, of course, come after a year of energetic campaigning and organizing among women candidates, sparked off to a large extent by the Me Too movement, taking on sexual harassment and abuse. We've certainly seen plenty of that organizing here in California. In fact, it was just over a year ago that an open letter signed by more than 140 women in state politics uncovered a culture of rampant abuse right in the state's capital. It launched a movement that came to be known as the We Said Enough campaign. And over the last year, we've seen not only a handful of high-profile resignations by lawmakers accused of sexual misconduct, but also some serious reform efforts aimed at beefing up investigations into abuse allegations. I'm Keith Coney, and today on In-Depth, we're going to be speaking to some of the key leaders of We Said Enough to hear from them what they believe the movement has achieved so far. And also, now that the midterms have come and gone, what sorts of changes we should expect to see in politics with more women in power. First, we are going to hear from Adama Iwu, the co-founder and president of We Said Enough, who was featured on the cover of Time magazine after the letter was published. Adama Iwu, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So it's been a big year for folks across the country, but especially in uh, the capital in California, a lot of big changes. And uh, that's really the focus of what I want to get into today is what sorts of changes we've seen over the last year and what areas could still use some more work. But before we really dig into that, I was hoping maybe for those of us that have never worked in Sacramento and are, have no knowledge of what the culture is like there, bring us back to 2017, October, when uh, that letter was written and signed by 140 other women. And tell us a little bit about what you were responding to. What was it in that culture that prompted that response? Um, well, I had been working in state politics since 2005. Um, I had been, until about three years ago, someone who was in the Capitol on a daily basis. Um, I was a day-to-day state house lobbyist. And I think that I always felt like, yeah, there's a level of you know sexual harassment and discrimination in politics, but it really wasn't anything that I focused a lot of attention on. And I think like a lot of women, we felt like it was something you just dealt with and moved past and got past in order to do your job. Um, after the Weinstein tape came out, I think that I know it made me, for one, very angry because I felt like a lot of the things we heard him saying on that tape to that actress, I felt like I'd heard that said to me by men in politics. Things like, don't make me an enemy, you need me to be your friend, that kind of thing. Very coercive things that powerful people, usually men, say to people, usually women. And it made me really angry. And the next day I went to a political event and I was sexually harassed by someone I actually know. And it happened in front of other people that I actually knew. And nobody really said anything. And it was like nobody even saw it. And I realized at that point that 
men don't ever see these things because we don't make it their problem. We brush it under the rug. We don't talk about it to them. We whisper about it amongst ourselves and we warn each other, other women, you know, stay away from this one or be careful or that kind of thing. And we don't make it an issue. And I realized that I was tired of that. I was tired of it not being an issue. And talking to other women, um, they were saying the same things to me. And so when we started kind of circulating the letter, so many women said to me, I want to sign your letter and here's why. And they were telling me their stories. And even if their stories weren't directly about them, the stories all felt very familiar. And no matter what level or what position of power or what um, level of prestige or notoriety or authority that a woman had really gotten or gotten at that place in her career, these were very common experiences because it was women who were elected officials, former elected officials, women who worked in the administration with Jerry Brown, women who owned their own businesses, women who were staffers kind of beginning their career, lobbyists in PR. We all had these very common experiences of being sexually harassed, bullied, diminished, demeaned, abused, and in some cases even sexually assaulted and raped that I realized this is too much. We have to start talking about this. And not only do we have to start talking about it, but this is one of the reasons why we don't have enough women in politics. And I don't just mean, you know, as elected officials, I mean, at all levels, working on campaigns, working um, in the different party structures, working as committee consultants, working as policy experts, working as staffers in the legislative capital. Um, or in legislative positions around the Capitol, kind of in what we call the third house and the lobbying corps. We should have more women in all of those places, and this is one of the reasons we don't. So was there a moment, because as you say, this is something that folks knew about, but it was not something that folks discussed, and then all of a sudden it became at the very front burner of what people were talking about in Sacramento, was there a moment where it became obvious that what you had just done had unleashed some real forces that were going to make an impact? Yeah. So as soon as the letter came out, I think those of us who'd signed it realized immediately kind of what this was, and mostly because reporters from all over the world started reaching out to, you know, those of us who were kind of were like the core group, but also every single woman who signed that letter was getting multiple calls from reporters asking, you know, who, what, where and why and like, what did they know and when did they know it and that kind of thing. And that was a lot to deal with. Um, and then we were kind of very clear that we didn't want to name names. That wasn't what we wanted. We weren't after one or two people, you know, just kind of going away. We really wanted wholesale culture change. And when legislators began resigning, I think that was when we really realized that this was real. And we also realized that it was real because we were seeing this happen in other places around the country as well. Other legislatures, women, um, men, elected officials. I do multi-state lobbying. So people from other states were reaching out to me and saying, hey, we want to do our own letter here. Or, you know, we're voting to remove this person from office or this person just resigned. And there was a wave. We had about 112 special elections earlier this year in 2018. And a lot of it was from people who'd stepped down, been resigned, removed, whatever, due to sexual misconduct, which is absolutely a crazy number when you think about it, because not every state even does special elections. In a lot of states, they just will appoint someone if someone is removed or leaves or whatever happens. Um, we also started seeing legislation 
all across the country addressing Me Too issues, addressing issues of gender inequality, um, harassment, discrimination, abuse. And then we also saw legislation in Congress. And it happened very quickly. Um, I'd say within the first month or so, we saw people resigning, even in California. And I mean, we'd have five legislators resign, which, I mean, as somebody who's kind of worked in politics my whole career, that really means that, you know, close to five million people around the state were disenfranchised for a period of time by not actually having elected representation. And obviously, that's not what we started this for. And that is a horrible byproduct of this. Um, we now have special elections that have filled those seats. But, I mean, elected officials have a very um, profound responsibility to the people that they represent. And when things like this come out, any kind of misconduct, whatever it is, it's the voters are the one that suffer. But I think that all of us who signed that letter, we felt that very deeply. So in addition to those high-profile resignations, there's also been some legislation that was passed uh, among that legislation that protects whistleblowers that uh, are the ones that draw attention to instances of harassment. With all of this taken together, what do you think has changed in the culture over the last year? Is there a noticeable difference in the way business is done in the state capitol? Um, I think there's a notable difference in the way that uh, people react to things. Most women that I've talked to said that they see that things have changed. They feel like things have changed, but they also feel like it could go back at any point. Like one woman said, you know, I feel like it's like a rubber band. It's we've been stretching, we've been pushing, but it always wants to snap back. And I think that that's kind of the way it is with any kind of societal change. There are always going to be people who want things to go back the old way. There are going to be people who have a vested interest in things going back to the way they were. But it's up to others to keep pushing. Um, One of the other things that I think has really changed is that so we had some instances of things that happened at the end of session. Um, you know, a legislator used really crude language towards a lobbyist. And I really feel like in the past that would have been, you know, people would have circled the wagons. It would have been kind of hushed up. And it wasn't. Um, other people actually stepped in and intervened. That legislator was escorted out of the um, restaurant. The lobbyist who it happened to filed a report. Her... Um, employer was very supportive and made a statement. Um, The lobbyist was African-American. The African-American Staff Association in the Capitol wrote a letter of support of her. And so it wasn't brushed aside like I think it would have been. And so if anything good has come of this, it's that people are reporting more. There is still a lot of work to be done, but people are not just hiding things when it happens anymore. And I think that's good. Now, what are the, in your view, going to be the biggest drivers of change that make this a sustained change? I mean, there's a lot of different ways to look at what brings about change. I think the more comforting view is that there's a few bad apples out there. They're responsible for 95% of what's done, and you get them out of the picture, and then we're all hunky-dory. But I think if a lot of us really reflect on our own conduct, everybody can point to some questionable things that they've done in their past. So what does it take to create a sustained focus on getting folks to work better together? Um, I think it takes a sustained focus, frankly. Um, 
this right now, it's news. I think one of the good things, and um, people ask me, you know, what did being like a silence breaker and a Time Magazine Person of the Year or whatever really mean to me? And <laughs> to me, what it meant was that this issue is not going away. It gave it really um, a kind of like object permanence, I think, in kind of the consciousness of the country. Um, so this isn't going away. And I think that as long as we have the fact that these 140 women, um, the LA Times just did kind of a survey a year later, and a couple women, I think maybe three, said that they wouldn't have signed the letter knowing what they know now. But I mean, that's still like 144 of them who said, yeah, we think this was the right thing to do. Um, the other thing I know is that it takes numbers to create change. And there are a lot of people who are very committed to making sure that there are change. There's been a lot of people who have always wanted warm women in the Capitol, who have always wanted to make sure that our LGBTQ brothers and sisters or whatever you identify as feel safe in the work environment. There are always people who have wanted to make sure that um, the environment is safe from bias and free from discrimination. And those people are still committed to it. And this has given them a platform. And so I think that this is an ongoing thing, and it's like any other movement. We don't really ever get to stop. Shifting gears a little bit, uh, the Me Too movement across the country has earned widespread praise from, uh, I think, most commentators, but also spurred some amount of uh, concern for some of the changes that have taken place. And so I want to bring in the voice of somebody else right now, uh, Cynthia Bryant, who is the executive director of the California Republican Party. And uh, just to be clear, uh, I, don't, I don't want to misrepresent uh, Ms. Bryant at all. She applauds much of what has followed from that open letter a year ago. The fact of the matter is no one should have to put up with what some of these women had to put up with. They were just horrible stories. And the legislators who lost their jobs deserve to lose their jobs. But she says that she does have concerns that some changes may have impacted professional relationships between men and women in the Capitol. Does it go so far as to... Like no one wants to even shake each other's hands or or have even any kind of cordial greetings. And does it make everyone more standoffish? And do do people lose some of the congeniality, the congeniality that that exists? And if that's true, she's also worried this could impact women's ability to network effectively with their male colleagues. I hear stories that male staff and male legislators don't want to be alone with female staffers. They don't want to be alone with a female lobbyist. Are female lobbyists and female staff members being excluded from, you know, being in the same meetings and having the same access that a male staffer would? So I want to break that up into the two separate parts that we just heard there. I mean, first, have you also observed some of the chilling effect on uh, relations across the genders that she's describing there? And second, if so, does that raise the concern that some of the opportunities for networking that uh, ambitious women would be hoping for might be closed to them? I think what I've seen is definitely more care with uh, how people interact with each other, which, I mean, honestly, I think most women, if you ask them, we're fine with a little bit more formality. <laughs> Um, I personally am. I am fine calling someone senator. I am fine calling them assembly member. Um, I am fine shaking hands. 
um, I think most women are. So I do think that there has been um, some kind of reticence, like, you know, maybe we don't hug as you know, readily anymore. And frankly, I'm fine with that because at the end of the day, even though we do have to have that congenial kind of work relationship and atmosphere, it's also work. That's fair. Um, do, do you have the sense that folks are walking around on tenterhooks? In some ways. But I mean, I also think that I'm kind of a weird gauge because since I'm like the main agitator. <laughs> if they were ever um, going to be walking yeah, on tenterhooks. Yeah, if there's anyone who they're not going to hug, it's going to be me. And I mean, honestly, I still hug people. So, I mean, I think that it's also a matter of how well do you know someone and what is your relationship with them? And that's kind of been an ongoing conversation over the past year. A lot of men have asked me, you know, well, what is appropriate? Can I tell you you look nice? And, you know, some of this, I think it's that people want to act like they don't know what the boundaries are, even though they do know what the boundaries are. <laughs> and they're concerned that maybe in the past they have broken or, you know, stepped too far over the boundaries. And probably they did. But I also think that this is a moment where women have to be brave and compassionate and set those boundaries and say up front what they are and what they are not comfortable with. And that is difficult in the extreme. But I think that this is the moment where you can actually have those open conversations and say, you know what, I prefer not to hug. And that was a big kind of conversation because we actually have a legislator who was like, called Huggy Bear. So, you know, Bob Hertzberg. Yeah. So that was a conversation that we had to have. And I think that even Senator Hertzberg came out of this feeling like, OK, it's fine to ask. It's fine to get consent. It's fine to um, realize that maybe not everyone is on the same continuum of wanting to hug or that level of informality or whatever else that is. And I think that those are conversations that we just get to have as individuals. Have you also heard uh, women talk about that phenomena that they're not being invited to key meetings or the golf course or whatever since this has become more of an issue? Um, I have not heard specifically in the beginning. I had heard one female lobbyist say that she had heard that legislators were saying they weren't going to do meetings with women alone anymore. Um, so, I mean, like, this is just me personally. I've done a lot of meetings all over the place, men, women, alone, not alone. It is almost always better to not do a meeting alone just because then there is no misunderstanding about who said what, when, where, how, or why. So that's just one thing. And a lot of legislators, staff, won't ever let them do meetings alone. So there's also that. But, um, you know, we have to be very careful that as we move forward with this that, opportunities aren't taken away from someone on the basis of sex. And I say it that way very specifically because that is actually illegal on its face. And that is something that people can get in a lot of trouble with. It is it is able to be even remotely proven that that is what they are doing. And so I do think that it's um, as we have these conversations about what is appropriate, what is not appropriate, one of the things that I also tell people is that, you know, because I've heard, especially in the legal setting, you know, well, I have an associate, she's a female, I don't want to take her on trips anymore. I have heard that a number of times. And what I will say is that as a female who has had to make her way in this world, usually working for men, when a male boss says to me, hey, you're going to come with me, we're going to do this trip, 
in my mind, my first thought is, this is amazing. I am going to blow him away. I'm going to be so prepared. I'm going to have everything. I'll be one step ahead of him every moment. I am. He's never going to want to go anywhere or work with anybody else but me because I'm going to be the very best. Men, for some reason, because women are like this crazy other thing that have these very alien <laughs> ambitions and desires and wants in their mind, men think that we're immediately going to someplace where we're trying to like scroll with their life or something, even though we have like worked very hard and gone through many, many years of school and have a lot of debt to get to a place in our career where we can actually just have a job with them. So that is what women think when they get an opportunity and to start stripping that away because you feel like women have some other or they are some other kind of thing it's discrimination and so in general i guess does that just call for more consciousness of yes making people welcome everywhere i think it just calls for more consciousness of the fact that women are actually people and they have the same you know, wants, desires, ambitions that men do, and most of them have nothing to do with men's personal lives. Hate are to we, break it to you. Are we always making it about ourselves? Is that what you're saying? I mean, I didn't say that. <laughs> Is that what I'm inferring? <laughs> this was also the year that uh, Tony Atkins uh, assumed the position of uh, Senate pro tem, uh, first uh, female to take that role. How big of a difference does, I mean, obviously one person can't change the culture of an entire political system, but how big of a difference does something like that make? Um, I think it's huge. And um, Senator Atkins is not only a female, she's also um, openly a lesbian. Um, I think that this opens up things on a number of different fronts. And I think it's good on all fronts. And she was very clear when she came in that she wanted to make sure that it's kind of this culture of harassment and bullying and discrimination and abuse and assault um, was ended. And she's been very deliberate in having those conversations. And I think that's important. This was really difficult for legislators because it made them look each other in the face. And if you want to believe that, you know, some knew about some of these things that were happening or if they did or if they didn't, they've had to face it. And that has been really difficult. So a difficult process overall. Uh, I mean, we heard from some of the women that signed that letter originally that they wouldn't do it again. But as you said, it's a very, very small minority that said that. What has your personal experience been over the last year? Um, Deep sigh. Yeah, it's been a year for sure. Um, I kind of joke that if I could do it again, I would still sign the letter. I just would have made somebody else be the face of it. Um, you know, it's been uh, a lot to deal with. I even to today, get emails, people calling me and saying, here's what happened to me on the worst day of my life. Can you help me? And That's what can I do about it? And, you know, all of us who have been really deeply involved in this, Sam, who's our executive director, Christine, who's our general counsel, Paula, Alicia, we've, we all get these calls pretty constantly. I mean, literally, I got two yesterday. And, you know, the stories still come out. I mean, we just saw the story about Google yesterday. Um, there was a story about the guy from Topshop in the UK. So, I mean, this isn't over. And I think for me, that's just been the thing that really solidified, oh, like I'm really doing this. It's that it's not. It wasn't just like, oh, I could just sign a letter and then kind of fade back into my normal life. And I've had to really kind of move past my myself because it's not about me. And as long as there are people who 
feel like they do not have a voice and they feel like I have a voice, I should be using that voice to advocate for them. I mean, I am actually an advocate, so <laughs> I, I should be um, doing as much as I can to continue to push the agenda forward, to not let it fade, to not let people's voices be muted, and to not let the cause fade away. That was Adama Iwu. You're listening to In-Depth on KCBS, and we're speaking today to the leadership of the We Said Enough campaign about the effort to curb sexual harassment and abuse in California politics. Up next on the program, we're going to be speaking with the group's general counsel, Christine Pelosi. In addition to her role with We Said Enough, Christine Pelosi is also a chair of the California Democratic Party's Women's Caucus and the daughter of House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi. So she is in a pretty good position to tell us how all the women elected to political office on Tuesday will impact how politics get made in the coming years. I started off by asking Christine for her reaction to Tuesday's returns. Well, it's tremendous victory for women activists all over the country who for two years have been building a message around protecting health care, about defending women's rights, and about advancing our values. Some of those women went on to become candidates, first-time candidates, which was very exciting to see people like Katie Hill in California and Lauren Underwood in Illinois. Uh, young women go from activist to congresswoman in the space of a couple of years. Um, writ large, when you think about 100 women in Congress serving together, that's nearly one in four. As a contrast, when Nancy Pelosi, our representative and my awesome mom, was first elected to represent San Francisco, she and Barbara Boxer were two of only something like 24 women out of 435. So when you have a culture shift of 25 to 30 percent in any group or organization of diversity, it adds another element to the mix. And so for women to have 100 members out of 435, it means that we'll be putting our voices at the table. Women will be talking about national security and jobs and the economy from the perspective of people who who statistically in this country are not only the majority of the country, but the vast majority of family decision makers when it comes to health care choices, when it comes to the family household, when it comes to education choices. And, of course, for our military family members, uh, even though men and women both serve, the majority of the military family caregivers tend to be female. So putting those voices at the table to talk about health care and the economy and government accountability will be very significant. And help us understand what sorts of changes that might make in, in concrete terms. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of diversity of thought among this group of women. Uh, they, uh, we, we saw Republicans as well as Democrats uh, elected. So what sorts of changes do you think that those new perspectives uh, and more diverse perspectives will bring in terms of uh, actual policy shifts? Well, first and foremost, the vast majority of the people elected ran on the issue of health care, health care for their families, health care for themselves, health care for their communities. So I think what you're going to see, not just in the the doctors and nurses and healthcare advocates who won, but overall, you're going to hear the voices of experience at the table. And that will be significant when we talk, for example, about access to health care in rural communities. When you talk about access to health care in inner cities where you need more community health centers that are more equipped to handle situations like, for example, this flu epidemic and and the fact that we don't even have enough flu shots in inner city health clinics right now to cover 
the demand, which could be you know something that could become very important a month or two from now when the flu season really hits. So some things are as practical and basic as having people with experience, with lived experience at the table. The other thing I think we'll see is a far more robust security discussion coming because you have men and women uh, at the table who have been security analysts or served in our military. So they'll bring firsthand the perspective of people who have fought those fights. And so is is that really the key factor that we're talking about here is just having people that have direct experience with making those decisions about health care or making those decisions, as you said, about uh, personal experience and national security that will maybe foreground some of these issues a little bit more? Or how does that change the way that uh, these policy decisions are made? Well, first of all, I think it accelerates the the expectations. That is to say, if you look at the studies that have been done, the bipartisan studies that have been done about women in government, women tend to be more more productive. They get more bills introduced. They get more amendments passed, in part because I think women often feel that they're running on borrowed time. There's a very strong expectation of you're still crashing a men's club, right? So what are you doing here? Let me justify why I'm here. It's it's harder for women to win. It's also harder for women to raise money to get reelected. And so a lot of people will still say, well, what is she doing here? So women feel, I think, a, a greater need to have to prove themselves with urgency. So we see that. We also see, again, the stories corroborate this, that women have a more inclusive style. Look for people who look for women to take the input of others and lead coalitions versus men can work alone and don't have the same criticisms leveled at them. So I think the combination of women saying, I'm here to make a difference. I'm here for a purpose. I have to quite quickly establish my expertise, and I need to be a good listener so that I can overcome the gender stereotypes, I think that's why you'll see women being incredibly productive. Now, let's talk about the specific set of issues that we said enough was originally developed to respond to, uh, that being power imbalances, sexual abuse, sexual harassment. Do you think that having more women in government uh, is a step towards addressing those issues as well? Absolutely. One of the things that we learned very early on when we wrote the letter that Adama Iwu wrote and led on October 16th and, and got it published the next day, uh, we complained about the pervasive culture of harassment and abuse in California politics. We very quickly learned from our African-American sisters that what they experienced was more discrimination than sexual harassment. It was more racial discrimination. And what we learned from our LGBT brothers and sisters, was that what they experienced was more bullying than sexual harassment. And that's why within the first two days, we changed from harassment and abuse to the four words we use all the time, harassment, discrimination, bullying, and abuse. So one of the things that we did, even in our first 48 hours that we said enough, was to understand that we have to look at this intersectionally. Yes, the vast majority of victims are women, but men are involved too. Gender fluid people are involved too, and so you have to you have to look at the people um, who are impacted by the pain and have them come up with a solution. The other element that we found was really important was that people provide confidential counseling services and hotlines. I'm still the hotline. I'm dealing with something right now where I'm the hotline because people don't trust the systems that have been uh, put in place. So we still have these whisper networks that we're trying to turn into sister networks. And 
having more women in power and having a new generation of people come into politics who aren't from a state legislature or a city council where, that might have had a toxic environment there means that they can create their own environment. So just as we created our own message environment about health care in order for the Democrats to win the House, we had Nancy Pelosi and groups doing 10,000 events for two years to protect our care, and the Affordable Care Act went from being unpopular to being popular. Similarly, with We Said Enough, we have sponsored um, conversations that have led to over 100 people before uh, last Tuesday, over 100 people who had left office because of sexual harassment, discrimination, bullying, or abuse claims against them, and over 900 pieces of legislation that were sponsored to try to make a change. I think with women coming in, and women of color especially coming in from communities that are historically marginalized and historically more um, victims of abuse, you're going to find them making trauma-centered policy that will be more preventative in nature. A perfect example is Sharice Davids and Deb Holland, two new Native American congresswomen, the first two Native American women to serve in Congress ever in the history of the United States of America. Both of them talk intently about making sure that with Native women at the table and Native women's health needs at the table, that whatever we do with the Violence Against Women Act, for example, or with health care, will be centered around the Me Too issues of their communities. And I think that's going to change the policy for the better. Uh, so I'm curious in this notion of where the bipartisan space here is, because obviously there are a lot of uh, female Republican lawmakers that were just elected to office. But it sounds like what you're saying is that there are a lot of issues where uh, there are important perspectives that we're missing right now that don't really break down on uh, along partisan lines, where we really would benefit from having uh, more diverse experiences weighing in, giving their experience in policymaking. And it, it doesn't always necessarily have to do with a left-right divide. That's right. I think that there are issues that go beyond left and right. For example, when you had a critical mass of women, Democrats and Republicans, on both the House and the Senate Armed Services Committees, that's when you got hearings into military sexual assault. Because the women said, this is something that we need to do. Prior Congresses had addressed the issue as a line item or as a potential one-off as part of a larger hearing. But to put a spotlight, that took women. And that took women making the difference. And that was not a partisan issue because there were Democratic and Republican women who came together and said the generals are wrong. This should go outside the chain of command. There were also women on the other side of that who said, no, we want to keep it in our chain of command because we want to um, – Somebody who commits sexual assault may also be committing other kinds of crimes. And why are you taking the sexual assault outside of the chain of command but leaving, say, theft um, inside the chain of command? So that was something that was not necessarily women versus men or Democrats versus Republicans. It was independent investigations versus um, keeping the chain of command. And none of that dialogue would ever have happened if you didn't have the critical mass of women on those committees. And you expect uh, more issues like that to pop up? Absolutely. If you look at the Republicans just electing a new minority leader in Sacramento, um, uh, Assemblywoman Waldron, she, she did actually very well by victims when we were passing the whistleblower act. So I looked at that and I thought, oh, good. Well, that'll be, that'll be good for my issue that she's going to be um, – uh, leadership on the Republican side in the assembly because it will keep the new uh, assembly and when they get sworn in um, in in tune with 
we said enough in the Me Too movement, so that'll be good. Again, we will probably disagree on some of the remedies and who funds them, but we fundamentally agree on what the code of conduct should be, what sort of culture of equity and respect we want to create. So I see that as a good thing. So another thing to note about these women politicians coming in is a lot of them are actually quite a bit younger than their predecessors. And uh, I'm curious for your thoughts. I mean, having a younger generation take the helm, taking the responsibility of political leadership, is that going to have any kind of an impact on the culture shift that you're talking about here? Absolutely. I think that the people coming into Congress now and to our, our legislature in Sacramento, for that matter, are people who have been on the campaign trail during uh, the Me Too movement and the We Said Enough movement. And they've also, they're younger. They are they are not going to sit back and say, well, I'm going to go in there and get hazed and wait my turn and, and let people um, bully me. They're going to step right up and insert, assert themselves. And so to the old bulls in Washington and Sacramento, I'd say, watch yourself, because this new crop of people is not going to be here for that. Uh, they want to be judged on their merit. They want to be judged on the content of the offering they have as a legislator. And they certainly don't want to be hazed by people who feel threatened by uh, new people coming in with fresh ideas. So the best thing you can do is welcome your new colleagues, respect your new colleagues, because they will not quietly accept any form of of harassment. They're going to put it right back at you. So your best bet is to just understand that this is a new day. And even though you might have come to office in an earlier era where people were sort of, let me show you the ropes or um, you have to go along to get along, this new crop is not interested in that one bit. So make room. And that was Christine Pelosi, the general counsel for We Said Enough. Before that, we were speaking to Adama Iwu, the president of the organization. For In-Depth and KCBS, I'm Keith Menconi. See you next time. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for all news 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app.